This episode is brought to you by NordVPN. Listen up, nerds. No. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, from border to border and coast to coast and all the ships at sea. What? Hello, friends. Do you have a computer? Of course you do, because it's not 1987. Hell, you're listening to this on some kind of computer right now. But do you have a VPN? Oh, (laughs) what's a VPN, you ask? Well, my friend, a VPN is a virtual private network and it offers two key benefits. Enhanced privacy and security online. But VPNs do a lot more than that. VPNs shield your IP address, change your browsing location, and make online life easier. It's all about safety and security, my friends. But, like everything else in life, it's also about watching TV. Don't let your paid subscriptions go to waste. I use NordVPN to access my home content while I'm traveling. Wink, wink. Plus, secure your connection on public Wi-Fi in airports, hotels, cafes, anywhere you go when you're traveling. There's over 6,300 servers in 111 countries, and you can find a nearby server for the best VPN speeds. NordVPN is easy to use. Connect with one click or enable auto-connect for zero-click protection. And it's got amazing speed. NordVPN is one of the fastest VPNs out there. And with just one NordVPN account, you can use it on six devices. It supports every major platform, Windows, Android, iOS, Mac OS, Linux, even Android TV. I think those are all real. Don't miss out on all the awesome benefits for using a VPN. Go to nordvpn.com ifanboy today for a risk-free 30-day money-back guarantee. The link's in the show notes. Once again, that's nordvpn.com ifanboy. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Um, you ever feel like you really need to get something off your chest? This is this this is a, like a real thing. Like, if you're mad, if you're upset, if uh, if there's something going on, like the I, there's there's often for me an idea. Maybe it's a wrong. Maybe it's a moment. It's it's an injustice. It's something that because you, you keep going on and on over and over in your mind about it, and like that can create anger and resentment or shame, whatever it is. And very often. I have found, I am not a therapist, I have found that when you let it out, when you give it voice, when you say it out loud, um, sometimes it makes you feel better because you've, you've expressed it. And sometimes it makes you realize like, oh, this is not a big deal that I've, it's been stuck in my head. So you give voice to those things um, and it can make you feel a lot better. And shock of all shocks, therapy is one of those things that can help you do that. It can help you be able to say those things in a place where you don't need to worry about the repercussions of it, work your way through it, uh, figure out coping skills, how to get around it, you know, find, find ways to deal with that stuff instead of letting it fester. Um, if you are thinking of starting therapy, uh, if anything I said sounds familiar, you're like, oh, maybe my life would be a little better if I could deal with that kind of thing. You should give BetterHelp a try. It's fully online. It is convenient, flexible. It is suited to your schedule. That's the idea. That's what they're going for. Um, you can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. That's a big deal. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. That that personal connection, I believe, to be super important. Again, I'm not a professional. Uh, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash iFanboy today. You get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iFanboy. You're listening to iFanboy Talksplode with writer slash editor Scott Alley from Dark Horse Comics. your boyfriend when we were 15 it's the happiest that i've ever been even though we didn't understand how to do much more than just hold hands hey and welcome to another edition of ifanboy talks explode my name is ron richards and i'm here with my good friend paul montgomery hello how you doing paul doing all right all right thanks for joining me on this talk explode i know it's it's good to have you 
I'm excited. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking to Scott Alley, who is the managing editor over at Dark Horse Comics, and he has the task of editing uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Hellboy, Umbrella Academy, but in addition to that, he's also a writer. Um, And Paul, you actually read a lot of his stuff, right? Yeah, he does some Solomon Kane stuff that's really good. And he's got a graphic novel called Exerbia. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but we'll find out. Um, So yeah, so he was uh, kind enough to give us some time, so we're going to talk to him. Let's hear what he got to say. All right, so we're here with Scott Alley, who is the uh, managing editor over at Dark Horse. Is that correct? Is that your title? Yeah, pretty much. Excellent, cool. So, um, so for those of in our audience who uh, might not be aware of your role at Dark Horse or whatever, what do you do at Dark Horse? Um, I'm, I'm senior managing editor. I edit a lot of comics. I supervise some of the staff, and um, I'm involved in you know like long term planning for the publishing program. I edit the Hellboy books, the Buffy books. Um, I started the horror line. I edit the Goon. Um, Umbrella Academy and a, a few other titles. Wow, so you're pretty busy. <laughs> yeah. So in addition to that, you also write comics, um, mm-hmm. which is awesome. So how did you like? How did you get into comics? How did you get to Dark Horse? Like, how did you get to where you are today? Well, I I um I started reading comics in junior high, pretty much, and, and got real serious about it. And then uh, you know spent a lot of time in high school writing and drawing comics. Never really thinking about it as a career because I didn't really understand that comics could be a career. I remember the first time I met a pro, I met Matt Wagner um, at uh, Brian Hibbs' store in San Francisco. He was doing a signing. And there weren't many people there, and I got to talk to him for a long time. And at one point, I was like, you know, this was when Matt was doing uh, Batman Grendel, and he was doing um, the Faces miniseries in Legends of the Dark Knight. You know, and he had just drawn an issue with Sandman. And I was like, so do you, like, working on comics, Do you are you able to, you know, make a living doing that? And he just kind of laughed. And he was like, yeah, yeah. It's a, and, and, you know, up until then, I wasn't really sure that it was a, that it was a, career option um but I, I you know i got pretty serious about it focused on it really closely in school and then when i got out i moved i was living on the, on the east coast when i got out of college i moved out west just to kind of get away from things and it was a coincidence that the town i moved to happened to be portland happened to have dark horse here and had a thriving comic scene in 1991 the comic scene here was was definitely getting started. It was nothing like it is today, um, but there were a lot of people who had moved here because of Dark Horse, uh, a lot of creators who were here because of Dark Horse, and a lot of young people who were inspired because Dark Horse were here, was here, which I think had some influence on me starting a self-publishing company, and Brett Warnock at the same time was stuck, was starting Top Shelf, and um, you know with the now there's a bunch of publishers, there's, uh, Oni Press, Blue Water. There's a bunch of local publishers doing comics, and um, it's definitely the the climate inspired by a town like this, inspired by having a company like Dark Horse here. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, now Portland is, is seems to be a it's a hotbed of creators. I mean, we know all the you know you know from the indie scene with the Stumptown Fest and all like you know all the way up to you know Bendis and Parker and Remender and all those guys kind of be in the city. Yep. It seems like a, a yep. Matt Fraction just moved here. Yeah, there's just tons of guys here. So do you guys all just like, you know, meet up at comic book stores and have big parties and stuff like that? or? <laughs> yeah, we all we all play kickball on Friday afternoon. It's great. It's really cool. It's very cool. So um, so when you got into it, though, you know, so you started with publishing. Um, did you did you start out to be an editor or start out to be a writer? I mean, what was your kind of, you know, um, your, your approach to working in the industry? Well, the way I, the way I started, I, I did start as a self-publisher, so I was kind of editor, publisher, and writer. And um, one of the, the way that I approached creative stuff from high school on into 
into my my career um I always kind of looked like looking at the whole package. I know that it would be really difficult. It is really difficult for me sometimes when I'm when I'm writing something and I don't have any other control or involvement in it. Um, I, I try to avoid situations like that. Uh, if I'm going to write a series for Dark Horse, I want to make sure it's it's done in a way that I can be involved editorially. You know, there'll be an editor who runs the show, like Philip runs it on Solomon Kane. But um, but I I'd hate to be a writer sitting in my office, you know, out in Kansas or whatever, emailing scripts in and then eventually seeing a finished product. Um, I like being involved at every level of it. And so my editing career influences the way that I approach the writing, and my writing certainly influences the way I approach editing. Um, I, I I love being able to work with amazing writers like Kurt Busiek and Joss Whedon and Mike Mignola and really learning from what they do and letting their stuff influence what I do. Um so the two the the two aspects of my job, the writing and the editing, are really interwoven. You know, really kind of as much as possible. I I've learned um, I've learned how much you have to be respectful and how much you have to put up boundaries for yourself, so that you're not um, trying to write the comic for the guy that you're editing. You know, if you're the editor and you've got you've hired a writer, you can't step on his toes too much. You can't. Um, use him as a way to get your ideas out there and and i think that's a that's a bad instinct that exists in a lot of editors and i think one of the reasons why i'm able to to you know be victorious over that is because i do have an outlet for my writing i i i want to write stuff i get to write kane i get to write exerbia and i've written other things um and so when i'm editing you know when i'm when i'm editing one of my other books I don't feel like I have to get my ideas out there through my editing because I'm getting them out in another way, and that's really satisfying to me. Um, and it's why when when I was the editor on the Conan line of books, I um, you know I, I I I got Conan, I got the Conan gig to edit that, and I studied up on Conan and really researched and read a lot and tried to figure out how do you make the ultimate Conan comic. And I felt like Kurt Busiek and Kerry Norwood putting them together was really going to do the trick. And then it was time to do Cull. So I read a lot of Cull and tried to imagine what would make a really good Cull comic. And I thought, geez, what Arvid Nelson does would be really good for Cull. And Will Conrad, he was one of our runners up on Conan. He'd really be suitable for, for Cull, and he'd be real different from Kerry. So I put those two together. And then when it was time to do Solomon Kane, as I did my research, as I read all the Howard stories, I, I started getting a really, really specific idea of how I wanted to see the book written, and it would have been bad if at that point I said, well, maybe if I hire this guy, I can make him write it like this. I, I knew how I wanted it written, and had I hired a freelancer to do it, I probably would have micromanaged him to death <laughs> in, in mm. bad ways. By No, you got to get the narration to sound more like this. So it was like I so I went to Richardson and Randy Stradley and said, "Hey, I think I want to write this." And they said, "Okay, we'll give us an outline." So me and like four other writers pitched for it, and um, and you know I knew what Mike wanted. I knew how to write a pitch that would give Mike what he wanted, um, which is my job as an editor is to to create the comics that Mike Richardson wants to publish. I know how to do that and meet my own creative needs and meet the creative needs of my 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 talent that I hire um, and so with Kane it's like I know what I want to do here and I know how to make that sync up with Robert E. Howard's vision and with Mike Richardson's vision and you know as an editor I've learned that often you have to 
while pleasing yourself in terms of creating a cool a cool story you, you often have many masters that you have to please um and that's that's part of the nature of this sort of writing this sort of business right and that's i mean it's interesting we'll talk about solomon Kane in a second but it's interesting like the role of the editor you know like it's one that i you know as we you know kind of sit on the sidelines as comic readers and and these sort of things try to figure out what everyone does like we're obsessed with process and how you guys make comics and you know it's clear you know what the writer and the artist and the anchor and the colorist do but the editor is an interesting one because like you're part creative you know you're involved in the creative moving the story along but you're also you know, like you mentioned, finding the artists and the writers to team up and then, you know... Like a matchmaker, basically. Yeah, exactly. You're almost project managing yeah. the comic as well. well. Well, project manager is a great word for it. Editor is a very mysterious word. Nobody knows what that means, and yeah. partly it's because it means something different all the time. Anywhere you go, it means something a little different. But the editor is the project manager because not only am I trying to make sure that the story gets told in a way that we're all happy with, but I'm I'm hiring people, I'm managing schedules, I'm managing budgets, I'm firing people for various reasons. Maybe, they, you know, maybe they're doing bad work or maybe they just can't turn their stuff in on time or maybe they say something really stupid <laughs> in the press. Um, so it, uh, there's a million different jobs the editor has to do and and the, the the reader shouldn't really understand it. The reader, the editor should be invisible to the reader. Um, so when, you know, whenever you see, when, whenever an awards category has a um, best editor, usually the best editor is, you know, usually the best editor wins purely on the popularity of the book. Um, not necessarily because the editor is doing a great job. You know, if um, if I won best editor because I edit um, Buffy, it's like, well, really, it's Joss making Buffy as good as it is, and it's the other it's the other talent. Oftentimes, an editor really is an essential part of the, of the mix, and the book would be different with a different editor. But often, that's not the case. Um, to me, the best editor award, the award that really the editor earns uniquely is if you win the award for best anthology, because anthologies are where generally an editor is really in control and the editor really kind of earns it. So if, you, if, you, if, an, if a book wins the best anthology award, the editor should really pat, pat himself on the back. But if, if you win a best editor award from some website and say, well, they must really like the book. Hopefully you, you didn't, you know, hamper its progress or anything. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned because a lot of times, you know, the, the editor, you're kind of on, you know, working with the writer and the artist and they're the ones making the book. And it's interesting because I interviewed uh, Gerard Way back when the first um, – uh, Umbrella Academy uh, series came out, and one of the things he highlighted was working directly with you and how you helped him, you know, kind of move the story along and work really closely with him. Is part of it knowing when to get involved creatively and when to back off and let someone like Kerpusiak or you know whoever do what they do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Gerard hadn't written a comic before. He or he he had written comics before, but but he you know he hadn't really done it professionally. He hadn't done a whole lot of work, and. Um, you know, yeah, I, I I was very hands-on with Gerard in all the right ways, in, in the ways that he needed. You know, Umbrella Academy, Hellboy, these are creator-owned books. But the way we treat Buffy, is a, it's basically a creator-owned book. He doesn't own, Joss doesn't own it, but he has absolute control over it. Um, so the job of the editor is to make sure that the book 
follows through on the vision of the creator and you don't get in their way you don't get in there and, and tell Mignola what to do or what not to do but you try to help him realize his vision and then you help all the other players involved realize Mignola's vision and you know and that's that's kind of the way I look at the book these various books when I was editing Conan it was a unique approach to that because I never met Robert E. Howard. I never got to talk to Robert E. Howard. All I was able to do was study the work and then try to figure out, okay, if if this is if, if Robert E. Howard's the vision, how do I, you know, continue that vision across in the coloring and the lettering and in all these aspects of the book? Um, it's much easier when you can get on the phone with Mike Mignola every day. Um, <laughs> it's much easier to understand and execute the vision than it is when um when the, when the guy's been dead 80 years or whatever yeah. it is now so it's knowing how to get out of the way to get, to get the creator to do their best work and sometimes to get the creator to do, to do their best work you do have to get right into the center of it well, the other thing with robert e howard is that you know the amazing writer created this great you know like le- lexicon of, of amazing characters, but one thing you can't really say about him is that he finished everything he started. So <laughs> yeah. with, with with Solomon Kane, you're dealing with a lot of story fragments. Um, like for instance, the the new series you're starting, um, uh, Death's Black Riders. That's I mean that's based that's like a two page you know story, right? I mean it's and it's it's sort of like like a starting point. But um, you know how do you how do you know you know what, like, is it reading the whole, like, um, the whole work of, of, of Solomon Cain, all the stories together to understand how to use it as a, as a starting point and what, what to do from there? Yeah, I, I, I read this stuff, I literally read this stuff backwards and forwards. I tried to see, I read all the stories, and then I tried to figure out a chronology for them, and then I read them all again in in that order. And then I got this wild hair to, um, to read them all backwards, to read the one that I thought was last, and then go backwards mm. to the one that I thought was first. And through doing that over the course of, I did that over the course of like a month, read all this stuff three times in different sequences. And, um, you know, when Howard wrote the Kane stories, he didn't really think about them sequentially. He didn't really think about how this one leads into this one. Mm-hmm. And the comic book audience expects that to some degree. You know, they want some continuity. They want some flow to all this stuff. So I wanted to take all the stuff that Howard wrote and all the stuff that he half wrote and figure out the big story that gets told episodically over a long period of time. And I, I came, that came into focus for me, and I felt like I understood what it was. And it was convenient. I felt it was very convenient for me that the vision I saw for this story put a couple of fragments at the very front of it because it allowed me by starting on fragments which i would have to expand considerably because yeah that's black riders is basically solomon kane sees a monster and that's it mm-hmm. that's all you get he sees the monster the monster runs by okay then what happened or what happened before that you know and with castle of the devil the first one that i did it's also it's a conversation between two characters who meet on the road. Something a little bit weird had just happened. They Solomon Kane had just found a boy hanging from a tree and now they're talking about going up to this castle where this, this bad guy lives and all this all the peasants are superstitious about him. You, you don't know why they're superstitious, you don't know who the guy is, you don't know anything. I got to flesh all that stuff out. And in fleshing it out, what I've done, what I've been doing is adding things that build up the themes and the long-term plot line that I that I 
envision over the course of all the other adaptations and stuff because the the final story, the story that I view as as the last real Kane story um, is also a fragment. It's a much longer fragment and it, it's, it might be three quarters of a story and all we're missing is the end, but I get to determine that when, you know, many years from now I actually get to it. Um, so a lot of the Kane work will have to be pretty straight adaptations because Howard finished the stories. It's all there. You just got to do a faithful job with it. But starting with these fragments gives me a great opportunity to, um, to kind of frame the world, introduce you to the world through the lens that I want you to see it, and then in time, we'll, through the adaptations, you'll see Howard's stuff fitting into my milieu. It, it seems really liberating. That you, it's sort of like a, like a campfire story where somebody starts off the story and then you get to do the end-then part, and you get to tell you know, the, sort of the fun part. He has, he's, he's given you the setup, so it's, it's you know, off to the races with you know, a cool monster story. Yeah, and, and and frankly, I'm a little bit worried about what will happen when I do get into the straight adaptations, when I get into stories where it's like, well, this is great the way it is. I pretty much got to tell it the way he told it. That might get real boring compared to what I'm allowed to do right now. You know, So I, I, I'm very aware of that. I'm very aware that this job of writing Kane as a comic is going to shift a little bit when I get to the complete stories. I'm not sure how I feel about that. So, so just to back up, and, and you know, Paul is a big fan of, of the, the Solomon Kane books, and they're fairly new to me. So, who, for people who've never heard of Solomon Kane, what is the kind of what is the premise? What was Howard's kind of premise of the character? Well, Kane's a character created by the guy who created Conan, and he's he's probably his second or third most popular creation, along with Call. And Solomon Conan takes place in a in a fictional, you know, prehistory kind of kind of fantasy world. Solomon Kane's stories take place in um, the late uh, 16th century. In well, he uh, Kane is a Puritan Englishman who was in the Navy for a while, he was in the Army, and he, um, he eventually set out on his own. And he has a lot of adventures on the seas and all over. Uh, some adventures in England, some adventures in the Black Forest of Germany, and then a lot of it takes place in Africa. And he's a guy who wanted a mission in the world um, and started finding out that there were really terrifying things out there. Real, you know, things which he views as, as really satanic, and he has to get out there and do God's work by wiping them all out. Um, that's basically how Howard presents them, and, and I, you know, I, for the modern audience, for the modern comics audience, I want to get a little bit more into his psychology and, and look at him through a, a more complex lens. You know, I think Howard was, was just happy to see a guy running around cutting stuff up and shooting yeah. people. And, um, and I think readers now want to see that stuff, but they also want to get a little bit of insight into him. And the great thing about a Howard character, the great thing about Kane or Conan or any of these guys is they are never going to talk about their feelings. They're 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 never going to they're almost never going to express themselves in any kind of clear way, and so you have to come to understand them through other means, and you can understand them a little bit through narration. You can understand them. The most interesting way to come to understand them is through the way that that other people react to them, and that's uh, that's fun for me with Kane. And that's a place where, to me, it's kind of natural to insert a little bit of humor. Like, I don't make any of this stuff slapstick, but I try to introduce a little bit of levity, because Kane is such a grim character. I try to introduce a little bit of levity, because he's, because he's so grim, 
you know, in my experience, people, a lot of people react to a grim person, not by meeting them in their, you know, in their seriousness, but kind of like, you know, looking, looking askance at them and, and wondering why the hell they're so, uh, uptight. <laughs> yeah. Sort of, sort of like a, like a buttoned up version of Hellboy. He's a, you know, world traveler and, um, a lot of secrets in his past and stuff like that, but the comedy comes from the other characters and their relation to him as opposed to Hellboy's reactions to, you know, the world. Well, yeah, so. I mean, Hellboy, in Hellboy, Hellboy's the funniest thing in Hellboy. And mm. in Kane, he's the least funny thing. And, and, you know, again, like, to say funny or to say laughs or anything, it's, there's not really much of that. It's more than <laughs> a little bit of lightness amongst, amidst all the grimness. Um, but, yeah, Kane's stories are a lot like Hellboy's stories, the kinds of things. In fact, um, there, there's a Kane story called The Right Hand of Doom. And when I mentioned that to Mignola, he's like, and he loves Solomon Kane, he loves all the Howard stuff. I mentioned, yeah, well, there's that short story, The Right Hand of Doom. And he's like, what? There's a story called The Right Hand of Doom? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, Jesus, I didn't remember that. And like, yeah, I, you know, the, 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 <clears throat> the approach to Conan, and we're continuing it with Kane is to build trade paperbacks around adaptations of Howard stories. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, the the trade paperbacks will be titled after Howard stories, but I'm not going to, I won't have a Solomon Kane book titled Right Hand of Doom because I feel like it would step on Hellboy. <laughs> um, but, you know, clearly Mike sort of kind of subconsciously got it from there, even though he just didn't remember. <laughs> That's funny. That's crazy. Um, but yeah, I mean, Hellboy is a very light, charming, wonderful character that you really like. And, you know, Hellboy, uh, more so than our former president, I think Hellboy's a guy that you'd want to have a beer with. <laughs> and Solomon Kane's not. Like, nobody nobody who's emotionally well-adjusted would ever want to hang out with Kane. He's a drag. He's kind of a dick. He's maybe a little bit psychotic. And really, he's just totally humorless and and probably... To be with him would be painfully dull until the bullets start flying, and that's what makes the comic fun. But actually hanging out with a guy would not be a good time, I don't think. Whereas Hellboy, I, I, I love him. So it almost, Solomon Kane almost reminds me, like, if somebody's reading uh, Jonah Hex over at DC, they might dig this book, because it seems the same. Oh, yeah. Kinda, yeah, yeah. Diff- different yeah. time period, of course, but yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, there's definitely a similarity cool. there. And and so on the team you got working on this with you, so uh, you got covers by Derek Robertson, right? Yep. And uh, Mario Guevara, am I pronouncing that correctly? On pencil? Yeah, Mario Guevara. He he drew the first one. He drew the first one with pencil, and Dave Dave Stewart colored over it yeah. uh, directly over the pencils. Now he wanted to ink this one, and so it gives it a radically different look. And Dave wasn't available, so Juan Ferreira from uh, Rex Mundi. He's the artist on Rex Very Mundy. Cool. He's coloring Solomon mm-hmm. Kane, and the two of them make a really cool team. They they give it a unique look and a unique atmosphere. Yeah, awesome. And Guy Davis was involved in some way. Guy Davis, uh, because of my friendship with Guy, yeah. and because I think Guy is the best monster designer in comics, and, <laughs> and Mignola would tell you the same thing. Um, Guy designs the monsters for Solomon Kane, and he and he designed some of the architecture for the first series. The first series is called Castle of the Devil, and Guy designed the castle for me. This one's called Death's Black Riders. He designed the Death's Black Riders for me, and. Um, you know, guy's an incredible monster designer, and he just does this stuff because it's fun. He he helps me out on Kane because it's fun. And then we, he and I were talking late one night about Kane and some stuff, and we came up with a short story which we did on MySpace, uh, Dark Horse Presents. So 
that was a real treat. I got to write a 16-page story with a guy that, that he drew and Dave colored, and that's up free on MySpace, and it'll wind up going in the trade paperback with this Deathstock Rider stuff. Yeah, that's one of that's one of my favorite parts of the the Dark Horse trades is seeing those Guy Davis like scrapbooks in the back and then all the monster designs. Mike and I have always been really into doing sketchbooks, and we love doing sketchbooks in the books. When we first started working with Guy, Guy did all of his design work in a in a lined notebook. <laughs> and so, if you look at if you look at those early sketchbooks in the early the Guy Davis trades of BPRD, there's lines running through everything. And sometimes we mm-hmm. go in and clean them out, but sometimes you just can't because when Guy has a million lines in a drawing, you can't then go in and selectively get rid of yeah. the, the, the horizontal lines. So, um, you know, it's like we, we were, Guy does such great design work and I really wanted to present it to the world, but it looked like shit with the, uh, with the lines running through it. So... Um, you know, I said to Mignola, I feel like i got to ask him to start doing his sketches on plain white paper. And Mike's like, no, no, you can't tell somebody how to draw. You can't tell somebody how to how to do their sketchbook stuff. You can't try to control that. And I was like, yeah, I know, but, you know, it just looks so cool. So eventually I did say something to Guy, and he's like, oh, yeah, no problem. And, <laughs> and now he now his sketchbooks look better because there's not a bunch of ruled lines running through them. But in the BPRD trades, in the BPRD trades and in the Solomon Kane trades, Guy kind of lays out the sketchbook section for us. He 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 dummies it up and then gives it to us, and then we do the proper design work. But uh, he's very hands-on about that stuff, and he loves showing the behind the scenes. But it was us who really pushed him to do it in the first place. Yeah, cool. So um, so in addition to writing Solomon McCain, you had a, a graphic novel come out this, uh, this past fall, Exerbia. Um, yeah. And that was your 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 total creation. You know, it's not a licensed character or anything like that. How does writing your own characters differ from writing a licensed character? You know, like you know, I imagine it'd be more freeing to a certain degree, right? Oh, uh, yeah, of course. And what I was saying before about how doing Solomon Kane or or editing Hellboy or editing Umbrella, you're you're having to please many masters. You're having to, having to make sure that Gerard's getting the Umbrella comic that he wants, that Gabrielle's happy, that Dark Horse is publishing the comic it wants, but. Um, with with Exerbia, it's just me and Kevin, and and the stakes are relatively low because of the kind of book it is, the kind of money that goes into it. But that's incredibly liberating because, in a in a sense, nobody's paying attention. It's kind of like the early days with me and Mike working on Hellboy. Before there was a movie at the very beginning, sort of nobody was paying attention. We just would do whatever we did, and the books would come out, and everybody was happy. And then when the movies came along, there was a lot more people asking questions. They they still don't tell Mike what to do, but you get a whole lot more people paying attention. With Exerbia, you know, it it, it it might sound like a mixed blessing, but the creation of the book, you're mercifully left alone. And me and Kevin just making this thing up and doing what we wanted to do. Um, maybe it would have you know, maybe you could make the argument that it would have benefited from bouncing some stuff off other people. But with so much of my creative life spent, you know, like dancing between 38 different people, um, Exerbia was so much fun to just be able to go, yeah, whatever the hell pops into our heads. So, uh, so what is Exerbia about? Exerbia is about this young guy, Gage Wallace, who was a real idealistic kid who really believed in, you know, a, a certain vision of the future. A very idealistic, sort of anarchist kid who had a tragedy hit him and a friend of his and he completely abandoned all of that and he became this this slacker do nothing all through his 20s 
and now we catch up to him at a point where he's been at that space for, for, for many years. His girlfriend's sick of it. She walks out on him, and a series of events happen that make him really take charge of his life. And he's aided in this attempt to take charge of his life by this talking rat who's the messiah for this, this doomed, terrible town that he lives in. Um, everybody else in the town except for Gage worships this talking rat. And Gage thinks it's crazy that these people that these people think highly of the rat, but then Gage actually winds up meeting and befriending the rat and getting another perspective on it. And the rat kind of helps him understand um, in a very non-messianic kind of way. The rat winds up helping him understand who he is and what he's supposed to be doing. And, you know, it's not the two of them sitting around talking. It's buildings blowing up and people taking shots at them and hanging out in strip clubs. So it's pretty, pretty... You know, it moves ahead pretty quickly, and and there's a lot of we- there's a lot of weirdness, a lot of weird action. I think uh, Kirk Gisick described. I had him read the plot at one point and give me some feedback. He described it as um, Martin Scorsese's After Hours film if it was directed by Terry Gilliam, and it's like yeah, it's pretty much like that. You're running around an incredibly weird city with really weird people, and really weird things happen to you. <laughs> so I mean that's interesting because you know it sounds so kind of surreal and kind of chaotic, but you know Kevin McGovern's art is very kind of cartoony. Yeah. Yeah. So so you've got explosions and stuff like that going on, but then you've got this really kind of cartoony art approach. Um, how you know how closely did you guys collaborate on the look of the book? Well, the look of the book evolved over a long period of time. Kevin started out trying to draw more realistic, but he he slowly kind of found his own vision. And and the thing I love about Exerbia. It's the thing I love about Mignola and and certain artists is that they don't they don't they didn't learn how to draw by looking at somebody else and going I got to draw like that. They to me there's like and I I don't so much mean to put Kevin in Mike's class but there's an aspect that's similar in that they've they've arrived at their drawing style naturally and honestly not by having the John Bridgman book out in front of them or not by having Neil Adams plastered all over their walls but by drawing and drawing and drawing and figuring out what to stop doing and what to do more of and coming up with a vision. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of comics are drawn by people who learn to draw by looking really closely at comics. And while Mike and Kevin and, you know, these other guys have certainly done that, I think they arrived at a drawing style that really expresses themselves uniquely. And, Exerbia is as much Kevin's creation as it is mine. It's not like I wrote it and then gave it to an artist. We really evolved and developed this thing together. And the the look to me, to him, the look isn't it is integral to it. Um, the gauge wouldn't be who he is if he was drawn in a kind of normal, naturalistic way. Um, the 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 extreme cartooniness of it to me helps to push the the surrealism of it. Um, in a different way than it would be pushed if it was all drawn super realistic. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could see when you, you know, when you read the plot synopsis and that sort of thing, you could picture a very, you know, kind of dark and, you know, kind of chaotic style. But then when I saw the art and I saw the rat and I saw, I was like, oh, cool, you know, like it almost, you know, it adds to the kind of chaos aspect of it. I think a bit. <laughs> yeah, I think if we had gone dark and gritty, it would have been a totally different kind of story. But we wanted to be able to play with this kind of ugly and nasty stuff, um, but keep it light. You know, um, this this is the rare book that I've written that isn't a horror comic, and um, and in in my mind, it's like a fun, weird, crazy indie book from the '90s is, is the kind of thing that that we were going for. 
So yeah, so you, so you you know you mentioned horror and you you know done a lot of work with horror and dark horse and stuff like that. And would you consider would you consider Hellboy to be a horror book or? Yeah, I, I I've got a pretty wide appreciation of the horror genre. But yeah, Hellboy's a horror book, and the the there's a lot of different arguments for why I might call it a horror book. But for me, the most important thing in the clincher is the atmosphere. Is mm-hmm. that there's there's scenes where Mike achieves or Duncan and Mike or whoever he's working with achieves um, a certain kind of atmosphere that delivers the horror effect more than like oh is there a lot of blood in the book is there a lot of killing in the book that doesn't matter you know like yes the Saw movies are horror movies um, but but what's more interesting to me is, is, is a horror story that, that deals with interesting supernatural elements and can create a vibe and a mood and an atmosphere that's conducive to this sort of uh cosmic awe that H.P. Lovecraft talked about. Um, my favorite, and a lot of people's favorite Hellboy story in recent years, was a book called Crooked Man that came out last year. It's great stuff. And and Crooked Man, you know, y- you can ask, is Hellboy a horror book? It's like, well, go read Crooked Man. Yeah, that was <laughs> a horror book. And, <laughs> and certainly some of them get further away from that. You know, like, uh, you know, Wild Hunt made in in a lot of places. Wild Hunt feels more like a fantasy book. Um, Hellboy moves around and and does different things from different genres, but to me, it it does qualify as a horror book because of um because of the atmospheric stuff and the in the subject matter. We were talking about um, just how unique um, Mignola's style is, and for years, Hellboy you would only see him drawn by Mike Mignola and these days there are more and more artists and even writers adding to the you know the Mignola verse or the Hellboy universe um, how do you go about choosing you know who can come and work on, and, and play in that sandbox um, you have yeah, you know Moon and Ba and Dysart and we you know we kind of vet people pretty carefully um, we uh, and, and we bring people in who you know, for various reasons, only wind up doing one project um, because we try to we we stick with the people with with whom we have the most comfortable fit. You know, and when it's funny if you go back to when we started BPRD as its own series, when we first did BPRD Hollow Earth, um, we'd never done another project of any significance that wasn't exclusively written and I think drawn by Mike. Mm-hmm. Hollow Earth was sort of this first thing. But Mike and his buddies, Chris and, and Tom Smigoski, had an idea for a story, and they said, well, let's put this together, and Ryan Sook's a great artist, let's pull him on, on this. Um, but that was just looked at as a one-off story. We just saw that as we're going to do a BPRD story, and then we had no plans of where it was going to go after that. Mm-hmm. Then, when Mike really slowed down when the movies were happening, we didn't want to let anybody else do Hellboy except for, you know, weird tales and some, some fun stuff. We didn't want to have a bunch of other people doing Hellboy, but we we wanted to push BPRD along. But we still weren't really sure how. So I said, while you're focused on the movie, let me do a bunch of one-shots. I'm going to get a bunch of different creators, creative teams, and let's just see what sticks. And we used all these different guys, and we had some really good one-shots from these guys. But when we saw Guy Davis draw the BPRD in his one shot, it was like, okay, that's it. We know. We already liked the guy. We were already friends with the guy. But when we saw that one shot, it's like, okay, whatever we do with BPRD, Guy's going to be a part of it. Guy, mm-hmm. at, at that point, we didn't realize what was going to happen. We didn't realize that we were going to build 
like the the early Marvel universe with Hellboy characters, but we did know that we wanted to keep Guy as busy as we could. So then it was another couple of years, or at least a year, before Mike said that he wanted to start a, a basically ongoing BPRD series with Guy, and then we did Plague of Frogs, and, and Mike wrote it to kind of establish what this series might be, and we knew, you know, we were committed to Guy at that point. And also at that point, Mike was talking a lot to, to John Arcudi, with whom he'd been friends for years, and they, they saw stories in the same way. They, they saw so much eye-to-eye that we decided, okay, if we want to keep PPRD rolling, if we want to do a lot of stories with these characters, Mike needs a co-writer, and John's the perfect guy. So it was over this long process that we developed that core BPRD team. And now Mike and I just want to work with both of them, Arcudi and, and Guy, as much as we possibly can, where we're constantly like complicating Guy's schedule to try to get him to do more work. And we're always mm-hmm. pushing John to try to get more scripts out of John to get, to get more stuff on the schedule with him. As we grow the Hellboy universe, the the first guys we look at sort of are are Davis and Arcudi. Um with Duncan doing Hellboy, um, once again, you know, Glenn Murakami's a, a a good friend of, of, of ours, of Mike's and mine, who's helped a lot at important key moments where Mike was gonna kill Liz Sherman, Glenn Murakami said, No, no, you can't kill her and Mike said, Uh, ah, okay. And I think <laughs> the deal was the deal was that Glenn had to do a Liz miniseries, and he's still never done it. So we got we got to call him. <laughs> but um, but then when another artist was supposed to draw Darkness Calls, and and that fell apart, we're like, crap! What are we going to do? Glenn suggests Duncan, and we were like, oh my god! How did we never think of Duncan Fergredo? And I think to some degree, I think sometimes Mike doesn't realize his standing or his place in the industry. And he was like, do you think we could get Duncan to want to work on this stuff? I was like, Glenn, let me check it out. And Duncan and I, for years, had talked about working together. We A number of projects had come up and then fallen apart. And um, and I'm just grateful we got him because we, we're very careful about who we have draw Hellboy himself. You know, bringing somebody into the team is one thing. Bringing them into draw Hellboy is, is another thing entirely. And Duncan... The great thing about Duncan is that his style is really similar to Mike's, but he arrived there nat- naturally. Like, if you look at the history, the things that are most similar about Duncan and Mike's style of drawing, Duncan kind of got there before Mike. Um, not to say that Mike took it from Duncan, but, but like the deadline weight, the big chunks of black, the kind of scratchy fill, filled in blacks. Duncan was doing that when Mike was still doing Saffron and the Grey Mouser and, and Iron Wolf and that stuff. Um, they, they developed the story, the style sort of at the same time, but, but some Hellboy fans have said, oh, well, Duncan's just ripping off Mike's style. No, no, he kind of <laughs> was already there. Um, that's just not accurate. But because the styles are similar enough, he was a good, he's a good fit for Hellboy. Hellboy's a hard character to draw. And and like you say, for many years you only saw him drawn by Mike. He kind of works best in Mike's style, <clears throat> and so it's natural that he's going to work best in a style that's real similar to Mike's. Um, so the 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 ideal thing is to get somebody with a style similar to Mike's who's not just copying Mike, um, which is a mistake that maybe we made in the past at some point. 
So, so, and with so many, you know, with, with, with the BPRD books going kind of in the bat in the past, and then you've got the Hellboy books, like, is there, I, I assume Mike has a, a, the, the Hellboy universe in his head. Like, does he know the chronology? And like, do you guys know all the Hellboy stories that there are to be told or have a direction to take it? Or is it, or is it, is it evolving as you guys go? Uh, th- there's a direction. Yes. Does he know all the stories to be told? No. And is it evolving as we go? Yeah. Um, a lot of the big points have been figured out for a long time, and a lot of them shift or change a little bit over time. Um, a lot of the details get filled in as we go for various reasons. You're working on one story, and you realize there's a hole somewhere else that you can do something with. And we, we try to avoid the temptation. This is something that I talked to Randy Stradley uh, about a lot. He edits the Star Wars books. We, we all try to avoid the temptation of just puttying in the cracks in continuity. Like, oh, there's 15 minutes of Luke Skywalker's life here that's not accounted for. Let's do a 12 issue miniseries. You try to avoid that because, it, it, frankly, it just gets creatively stifling and, and boring. But we're, with, with Mike and I on, on this stuff, we really try to, um, to pick the holes in the continuity that really deserve to be filled, that can really benefit from being filled. And that's where 1946 came from. We just realized that, like, Broom, Broom is this great character in the history of Hellboy's life, and he's hardly ever appeared in a comic, really, when you think about it. So mm-hmm. it's like doing the young adventures of this guy. We love the time period. We feel like the time period brings with it all sorts of potential. And the idea of, of doing an occult detective kind of character who's not big and red um, holds a certain appeal. How I mean, well, how long we we learned last year that you know Hellboy is is the king of Britain, basically he descended from King Arthur, which I was totally unprepared for. But when I read it, it was well, that makes a lot of sense. How long did you know about that? Uh, Fifteen years, I think. Wow, like, really? No, not no, no. It was probably thirteen years. Um, That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, I know it's nuts, and and. But he figured it out a long time ago, and it, and you know, at one point maybe it was kind of a joke, but but it was uh, it was really in connection with the story, the Chained Coffin, the short story in DHP, um, mm. that 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 kind of started coming into focus, and and at that point I don't I can't say for sure, but at that point I don't think Mike knew that you'd ever get to a point where Hellboy had Excalibur. I think way back then. We knew that he was the heir to Arthur, and but we didn't know that he was going to be the that that we knew that he was the heir to Arthur, but we didn't know that he'd ever get around to drawing the sword. Uh. But you know that's the thing you you know the broad you know the the most important stuff the big big stuff, but then the actual events kind of have to you got to let them happen when they happen. And, uh, you know, th- it was it was probably five another th- maybe three years ago that the decision that he'd get Excalibur, you know, when Mike was coming up with Darkness Calls, he knew that Darkness Calls would lead to Hellboy getting that stupid sword. Um, but yeah, it's <laughs> I just figure it out as you go. I feel like if you could break into Mike Mignola's house, there's got to be like a post-it note somewhere with like a list, just a, just a list of crazy things that Hellboy's either going to do or you're going to find out about Hellboy in the next 10 or 20 years. No, because Mike sucks at writing stuff down. <laughs> he keeps it all in his head, and he's so crazy that at any minute, it could all, the, 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 sh- the circuit could just go. But, um, 
but yeah, he 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 keeps it all in his head. I don't think he's written nearly enough of it down. Yeah. But, but what, what what's that like for you as an editor for him to say, you know, 13 years ago to call you up and and give you this information or whatever and then you don't hear about it for another, you know, 10 years? Like is it awful to have to keep, you know, the secrets and everything and No, one of the cool things about the way Mike tells the stories and I think it's a big part of why the vibe of Hellboy is what it is is Mike you know, besides being a, I, what I consider one of the greatest cartoonists alive, in in a weird kind of secret uh, behind the scenes way, Mike's really an oral storyteller. Or oral storyteller, because Mike is on the phone with me every day, talking through these stories. And the way I imagine, you know, like not to not to blow Mike out of proportion, but the way I imagine Homer doing his doing his business back in the day is he tells these stories, and when the crowd reacts a certain way, he goes, okay, this part here I'm going to make more of. This part here apparently didn't work. I'll shift that a little bit. And he evolves the story as he tells it, and he tells it, and he tells it, and it gets a little bit better, and things drop out, and he realizes he needs something else, and he completely abandons whole chapters. That's what Hellboy's been like for me and Mike for, for 15 years, is we talk on the phone all the time. We talk on the phone almost every day, usually for like an hour, and we talk about a lot of businessy crap more now than we used to have to. And we talk through the stories. And, you know, I mean, it, it's a joke. I, it's a running joke between us, but it's, it's funny because it's true, is that he'll call me up and it's like, okay, you're supposed to be drawing this cover. Duncan needs a plot for the next issue. But you just figured out what happens in a comic that we're not going to publish until 2012. <laughs> called me up because you got to ask me what I think of this guy. I mean, literally, this isn't a joke. This is literally what he does, is he'll call me up and he's like, all right, I got this bit. We got this scene where, and he, you know, I already know the scene because we've talked it through so many times, but now he's got the dialogue. What do you think if Hellboy says this to this character? <laughs> I'm like, okay. And then, because my brain's not as good as it used to be, I'll be like, okay, so this is the part where da 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 da, and I gotta have him help me get back into that moment in the story, and then we talk through it all, and then he runs down the dialogue, and it's like, yeah, that's really cool, but then he's gonna commit it to memory and think he's gonna write it in five, literally like five years. So, <laughs> with with Hellboy being the King of England, being the heir to Arthur, like I say, the first time we probably talked about that was probably around 1996. Wow. And then over the years, we continued to talk about it. It's not like he's like, hey, Scott, King of England, click, and then we don't talk about it. Until <laughs> yeah. we, it continues to be uh, it continues to be subtext. It continues to come up, and he'll continue to go, you know, to, to, to figure out some aspect of it. Like, here's how we get from A to Z. He's, you know, this is how we learn that he's the King of England. Um, you know, w what do you think about me bringing Alice back? He might have said that to me like eight years ago. Um, and and then it comes to the point where it really works. But it's cool. He's thinking about this story forwards and backwards all the time, yeah. and and it makes it a complicated, nuanced story that still has life to it because he is willing to change it. I mean, um, you know, there's there's a uh, there's things we know about the very end of it that haven't changed in ages. And then there's things that, that, that do shift, and that if he if he doesn't like something that he did in Darkness Calls, that 
could seriously alter plans for what will happen in Hellboy and Hell. But but it's all, um, you know, it, it's it's all alive all the time. The story. So a lot of, a lot of balls in the air. It sounds like a lot of moving parts. Yeah. Um, which actually reminds me of the other book that you're editing, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Which part of that kind of you know a lot, lot of ideas in the air and things moving on is uh, Buffy's been in the news a lot recently. Um, yep. <laughs> so um, uh, you may have heard. You may have heard. <laughs> and, I may have heard. Yeah. And we're catching you on the tail end of a, what's probably been a crazy week, huh? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. So so just to you know, bring those who are up to speed, you know, just um, we're we're just finishing up the an arc on Buffy and Brad Meltzer's beginning the arc called Twilight, and there's been a lot of um, you know kind of mystery around the identity of the villain Twilight, and um, yeah, let's think. Spoiler free because yeah. we've got a lot of flack for for not warning people. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, so if we if we can talk about what you want to talk about, spoiler free, let's do that. Sure. Yeah. The, well, the, the part we can say is that Twilight's identity is soon going to be revealed in the comic, and it was accidentally revealed on the internet, and a lot of people found out about it, and it was a bit of a bit of a you know. Yeah, and we're coming at the tail. We're coming, like I said, we're coming at the tail end of it. And I've, and I'm just gonna say, I, you know, because I'm doing my kind of you know research before we talk to you. And you know, I read the post that you wrote on DarkHorse.com, and I read a lot of the of Joss Whedon's kind of interviews and stuff like that. And you know, is the, is this a, a, a evidence of the challenge of licensed comics when you've got a bunch of different people involved in a group of characters, um, or is this just more yeah. a one time? Oh crap, we screwed up type thing. It, well, oh, oh, you mean the spoiler itself? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, this that that's a that's just that doesn't have anything to do with licensed comics. The only thing it has to do with licensed comics is the scope of it. Um, if this was, you know, if uh, if this was Exerbia, nobody would have given a shit that right. that we spoiled who the villain is. Um, but because it's so popular, because it's so big, and and it's you know in all my uh, in all my time doing this. There's been a lot of little secrets, like, for instance, Hellboy's the true king of England. Yeah. Um, I've known that for, you know, like like I said, like probably 13 years. But you guys weren't wondering, is he the king of England? Right. You know, like, right. like if I had said that, you guys had just been doing like, uh, what? <laughs> if I'd said that nine years ago or four years ago, you just would have been like, well, all right, uh, well, I guess. Um, but with this one, it's Dark Horse's most popular title. And there was a mystery that was the absolute center of the story. Who is this character? And people were waiting. People had been waiting for, well, I'd been waiting for four years, and people had been waiting for, like, three. And um, and then somebody accidentally sent out these covers that we had taken every precaution to conceal. And um, and it spoiled this, this, this secret, and it's a bummer. Yeah. Um, I've never been the custodian of such a worthwhile secret and i've never done such a good job of holding on to it and then i've never been so upset to see somebody else pooch it um so the scope of it the seriousness of the 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 interest has to do with it being a licensed comic but the actual screw-up is purely just uh just a procedural human error as it were yeah, and it, and it's interesting though because of all like it's it's you know, of all books like uh, I'm consi- consistently impressed at the loyalty of the Buffy fandom. Um, Me too. Yeah, it's just amazing to see and to see them warm to the comic as well over these past couple of years has been really. I mean, for you as the editor, it's probably been great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So so I guess you know then then the the challenge with that is that when something like this happens, it it kind of deals with it in the opposite direction as well. 
<laughs> yeah, they are a passionate crew for sure, yeah. and uh, they they're a passionate crew, and they, they've got really strong opinions about it, and they've got a really deep investment, long term investment in it, and in the creator. And uh, yeah, it's it's really disappointing to 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 have them on the edge of their seats about something, and then just like you know, fumble. Yeah. And, and it's also kind of a nature of the, uh, we talk about a lot of this on our website on ifanboy.com about the nature of, you know, spoiling and knowing kind of plot things and like kind of, you know, going back to, you know, in the superhero world, like when Captain America died, it was all in the news. We all knew about it. And it was less about knowing what happens and more about seeing how or why it happens. Um, right. You know, and with somebody like Brad Meltzer writing a, a four-issue arc that's going to you know reveal this, I can't imagine you know knowing the identity, you know, you know, protecting this, you know, we don't want to spoil it here, but knowing that it still isn't going to ruin the story. I mean, it, you got Brad no, Meltzer it's not going to ruin the yeah. story. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Brad's doing a great job. What what happens is really it is really compelling, yeah. and um, yeah, it doesn't ruin the story, but we really did build a surprise, yeah. and so now it sucks that the surprise we built kind yeah. of fell apart. Yeah. So, um, but that said, it, you know, it's it's you know, it's like I said, Brad Melser is going to be doing. I love Joss Whedon. I love what George Ajante has been doing on the book. It's just been amazing. Um, cool. And so you know, so it's it's interesting. We talk about a lot on our podcast about how you know this is season eight, and we're going into you know in the thirties of the issue. What is the you know, future of like is season the season eight have a definite end? Is Joss yeah. already have a season nine planned? Like, what is the yeah. Approach? So. Yeah, season season eight ends with issue forty. Um, Joss will write the final five issues. Brad writes up through thirty five, and then Joss writes the last five. And we know, you know, we know how that ends. And then um, we're thinking there'll be like maybe a six month hiatus, and then season nine will kick in. Yeah. And and did you find the forty issue length? I mean, well, I'm fascinated by the idea of like a TV series like Buffy was had a, like a twenty two to twenty four episode you know run, and where and I was curious to see how that was going to translate the comics. Does Joss feel like forty issues is what encompasses a season, or is it just a matter of what stories he has to tell? It, when when we first set out to do season eight, we we randomly had well not randomly but without thinking it through too well we we were like yeah it'll be 22 up 22 issues maybe it'll be 25 issues 25 is a nicer number and then we just realized wait this story is so big there's no way to do it in 25 and it was literally a case of like okay this has to happen this has to happen you need this much room 40 issues that's how we came up with 40 issues um uh we do feel like it 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 turned out to be too long um we, you know, the story that he needed to tell needs to be 40 issues, but I think if we're going to call the next thing season nine, we're going to make it a little shorter. Um, I think asking the readers to commit to a single story, um, and, and season eight, I think even more so than previous seasons of Buffy really is one story. Like with, with previous issues of Buffy, you had a lot of monsters of the week, you know, Mm -hmm. So you're telling one story, but there's a lot of breaks to kind of do the other thing and not really push the story ahead too much. And then next episode, you're really pushing it ahead. We had very, we, I, in a way, there were no monsters of the week. Like the monsters of the week were like Harmony, which majorly pulled pushed the story ahead. So, so there kind of weren't any monster of the week stories, and yet you're asked to follow this one thread solidly for four years, and uh, and we think. We, yeah, we think we got to go a little shorter next time. 
Well, it's sort of like it's it's an unprecedented experiment, you know, to do yeah. a TV season as you know, in a comic form. And I think one of the reasons that the kerfluffle blew the way it did was sort of like it counts. And it fe- to fans, it feels as if it's it's uh, it's more than a usual franchise comic. Oh yeah, and that for sure. It's I mean you know, you have Whedon behind it and everything, and so this is the, st- the continuing story and not just you know lost tales or anything like that. Um, right. But it's interesting to you know to see what what will happen with season nine and um, any you know differences in how it's structured and stuff like that. So yeah, it's good to hear that it's moving forward. <laughs> oh yeah, in, in in thinking about what's happening with season nine. Um, Season 8 is is such a big, epic game-changer for these characters. But in a way, like, sometimes when we talk about Season 9, it almost feels like Season 8 was the in-betweener. It's like, um, you know, Seasons 1 through 7 saw Buffy in a certain kind of milieu. Like, this this is her reality, and it was pretty consistent for for seven years. And... Season eight has blown that wide open, but it's kind of blown it wide open just to get us to the next one. In in a, in a sense, I mean, right. not to say that that what's going on with Twilight isn't significant. The the, the point is that this season is going to change her life and change her reality so much. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's going to be a lot like we've started a whole new thing when we get into the next one. And to some fans, that's really scary. To some fans, are like, you know, we don't want to change. We like it the way it is. Um, but to me as a reader, it's, it's like seeing the story go to new levels and go to new places. If I know that it's, it's being guided in the right way, which I have faith that it is, um, it's a pretty cool thing. Cool. All right. Well, we've chewed your ear off for long enough. I'm sure you got a ton of work to do. <laughs> so we appreciate uh, the time, and uh, everybody can find cool. all the great stuff at darkhorse.com. And our, um, where can they find you? Are you are you on the Twitter? Are you doing that? I'm on. I'm on Twitter. Yeah, yeah I'm on Twitter. Just my regular name is one word, no spaces. Scott Alley. Cool. I'm on. And uh, yeah, that's it for me in social networking. <laughs> Excellent. So people can find you there. And um, thanks again. We, you know, we really enjoy you know Hellboy, Solomon Kane, Buffy, all the stuff. We we're really enjoying a lot. Like like the work you've been doing. So thanks. Great. And yeah, I don't know when this when 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 this goes up, but my uh, the the new issue of Solomon Kane comes out on uh, the twentieth. Excellent. So January 20th. Very much looking forward to it. Yeah, so January cool. 20th, people January should look for that in the store. And you can find Exerbia, who came out last fall. You can order that on Amazon or your local comic store. Um, and yeah, and, and so we'll just keep reading. So thanks a lot, Scott. We appreciate it. Right on. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. So that was Scott Alley. Um, so yeah, that was that was some fun, eh, Paul? That was a good time. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, they're doing good stuff over at Dark Horse. It's cool. It's interesting to hear, you know, the kind of the editor's, you know, point of view. Yes. So, um, cool. So if you like this uh, uh, podcast, go ahead over to ifanboy.com. We've got a ton of other podcasts, including our Pick of the Week podcast every Sunday, our Don't Miss podcast on Monday, as well as the occasional Talksplode. Um, and we got some great articles. Paul is a writer over at iFanboy and does some great work. Thank uh, you, sir. Yeah, you're welcome. So if you have any questions, you can email us at contact at ifanboy.com. Uh, and thanks for listening, and enjoy your comics. See you. My friends think I'm insane. I'm still here.